Hello, I'm Mel. And I'm Steph. And this is East Asia for All, a podcast about the East Asian pop culture and media that you love. We're both working on our PhDs in Chinese history, but we also study and teach about East Asia in general. If you're listening right now, you, like us, probably also have an addiction to East Asian pop culture and media. Between the two of us, we've lived on and off in China, Taiwan, and Japan since 2007. So we're taking our love for East Asia, our experiences there, and the knowledge we've gained in the ivory tower, and making it available beyond our classroom walls. In this episode of East Asia for All, we're joined by Professor Noriko Aso to discuss the Ghost in the Shell media franchise. Ghost in the Shell is a body of work that began with a manga, or graphic novel, series by Masumune Shiro in 1989. After the original manga was released, the story and universe were expanded into television, movies, and video games. It's a huge body of work. Ghost in the Shell has recently been in the news because of the recent live-action version starring Scarlett Johansson as Major Motoko Kusanagi. Her casting prompted a heated discussion of race and the Hollywood whitewashing of Asian culture through pre-production and following its release in March 2017. For many fans, the live-action film felt as though the world of Ghost in the Shell a cyberpunk futurist landscape of gender-bending cyborg bodies, was stripped of its meaning to become a dazzling CGI backdrop for a mundane Hollywood plot. So what was the original Ghost in the Shell about? The first anime movie, released in 1995, told the story of Major Motoko Kusanagi and her partner Bato, investigating a hacker referred to as the Puppet Master, a sentient computer program which arose organically from human experiments with technology. The anime is set in a futuristic 21st century Japan-Asia, and the Major and Bato are members of an anti-terrorist special forces operation called Section 9. In the course of their investigations of the Puppet Master, it's revealed that he's intentionally hacking and wiping the memories of innocent people. And his eventual goal becomes to merge with the Major, who is a cyborg with a human consciousness, or a ghost, and a synthetic body, or a shell. At the conclusion of the film, the Major just decides to leave her individual identity behind and merge consciousnesses with the Puppet Master. And the sequel, Ghost in the Shell 2, Innocence, was released in 2004. It follows Bato and his new partner, Togusa, as they investigate killings by feminine robots that are used for entertainment, service, and sex work. In English, we might call them fembots, but in the film, they're referred to as gynoids. Through their investigation, Bato and Togusa find that the killings are an intentional malfunction put in place to draw attention to the trafficking and killing of young girls. These girls are being dubbed or merged with the robots, which gives the robots a semblance of a human soul and therefore a more human-like manner. Making them more marketable. Right, making them more marketable. But also, killing the girls in the process of stealing their souls. Ghost in the Shell 2 also features the appearance of a character, Haraway, named after UC Santa Cruz's own Professor Donna Haraway. The 2017 live-action version took plot points, motifs, and characters from both movies, although it drew more heavily from the first. If you're looking for a good entry point to Ghost in the Shell, we recommend the 1995 original. Definitely. So without further ado, the episode.
So we're joined today on East Asia for All by Professor Nuri Colasso. So maybe we could start with a little bit about yourself, Noriko, your interests, your work, anything you'd like to say. Uh, yes, well, I teach Japanese history at UCSC from ancient Japan to, uh, through contemporaries, so I'd say 30,000 years ago to today. <laughs> and in connection with this particular topic, I've taught Japanese popular culture uh, and as a class a few times, and also a history of science class where we talked about robots. Awesome. <laughs> My own work is actually sort of dips in and out of popular culture. I think if we think of popular culture really broadly, that's my main interest in that. My book, Public Properties, uh, is about the introduction of the museum form into Japan in the 19th century and how it moves sort of from a, a government project for creating a particular kind of public space to a project where many other people could participate and sometimes use it in a way to critique the government. So the sort of proliferation of museums as a not wholly monopolized form. So today we're going to be talking about Ghost in the Shell. And we wanted to preface the show by noting that at least Steph and I are not devoted fans of Ghost in the Shell. And so when we were preparing for this episode, we realized that there's a huge body of work under the sort of Ghost in the Shell franchise. There's video games, TV, movies. And so we read the original manga and watched the Ghost in the Shell and Ghost in the Shell 2 movies. But that is where our knowledge ends. Yeah, it was a little bit too much to handle uh, <laughs> in terms of time. But we did our best. So, you know, our plan for today is pretty simple. We want to talk about our reactions to the film, the three of us, the live action film, and in particular, the whitewashing that happened in this movie and that happens in so many other Hollywood movies. The specifically Japanese experiences that the original source material was dealing with and give it maybe a little historical context. And also some content from the originals that didn't really make it into the new live action movie and were really fundamental in this kind of world of Ghost in the Shell. So maybe we should start off with talking about our reactions to the live action movie. We three saw it together recently. And I know that when we walked out of the theater, we all had very many thoughts, <laughs> mostly negative. <laughs> um, does anybody want to go first? <laughs> well, I guess one of my first reactions was just how in the transition from anime to live action, a lot of stuff became very improbable. And a lot of the storyline had been radically simplified to, you know, a, a pretty mundane story. It's kind of like the born identity in Totally. You know, yeah. That's a very <laughs> accurate comparison, actually. Yes. It's like, I've seen this movie before. <laughs> um, and the anime version of Ghost in the Shell is not the born identity. So there is a certain degree of disappointment, certainly, of missed opportunities. And then, you know, with regard to the whitewashing that you brought up, it was just very strange, both in terms of space and in terms of the character, the major herself. And I had recently read an article uh, about four actresses viewing, uh, four Japanese and Japanese-American actresses viewing Ghost in the Shell, the recent one. And they very articulately put their finger on some of the very physical aspects that were 
wrong in the, the sort of characterization of the major in the movie, uh, who, as a reveal, if you know people haven't seen it, it's a spoiler, but the major is played by Scarlett Johansson, but the, the ghost, the sort of organic in her, is a remnant of a Japanese woman. And that Japanese-ness comes to play a pretty important part in the story, and yet it's not really a recognizable Japanese-ness in that the, the moment where the major meets her biological mother, the welcoming scene, the physical interactions, all that were nothing like you'd see in Japanese or Japanese-American culture. It's very touchy-feely, um, <laughs> which you don't see. <laughs> very American. <laughs> yes, you know, and oh, come in, you know, share my private space and <laughs> touch all these things. Let me show you the inner sanctum, which would be, you know, never <laughs> accessible. And then the final scene uh, between the mother and the major where uh, they hug, and hugging is just out in Japanese culture. You don't do that generally. As an aside, when you say I'm Japanese-American, and when I went to college, one of the weird culture shock things was everyone was hugging. <laughs> I didn't know what to do. <laughs> so, you know, so these actresses were able, because they're actresses and they think about the physicality of, you know, inhabiting a persona, I thought they put it really well, where they pinpointed that the physical interactions, the fact that Instead of a hug in a Japanese characterization or enactment, you'd have intense stares, right? Or, you know, intense looks away, right? <laughs> <laughs> not even, not right. even at the other person. That, yeah. that would have made perfect sense. And so it was, it was a very jarring in that sense. You know, at the, and that's sort of getting back to that theme of simplification, that, you know, the whole merging of you know technology and humanity that's supposed to be taking place in the in the major is just reduced to her being originally japanese right the which search is for such identity a right choice. yeah yeah i think you put it so well this kind of born identity as <laughs> plot hollywood plot line we all kind of picked up on that and i think we're pretty disappointed with the way that that played out there was so much potential as you said missed moments it just was very difficult to draw a direct line between what was happening in the in the live action and what real substance it had compared to the to the original anime and the and media. actually can I add too that the whole thing with the geishas everywhere and sort of the the space was also weirdly um, I mean it was a beautiful sort of landscape in many ways no doubt, so it's, right. you know, very detailed but there were geisha everywhere and geisha you know that the, the sort of holographic geisha and geisha and that marked it in some ways as not a japanese city <laughs> because you don't see geisha everywhere in japanese anything right that's a very specific thing and so it became again very apparent that this is a, a non-japanese imagination of something that's supposed to be kind of a Japanese space. And in the animation version, it's also actually not a Japanese space in the Japanese imagination, you know, with the Japanese director. It's, it's actually more of a Hong Kong space. And so, they, and so that's a much more interesting take about spaces of the future, I think. You know, what, what, what is Japanese? What is Asian? What is cosmopolitan? Whereas in, in the live action film, it just became this sort of pseudo-Japanese thing with geisha everywhere, mm -hmm. which was appalling. Yeah. I just couldn't... I 
There was the one scene where you had the two white actors, Scarlett Johansson and I think Michael Pitt played the other character. I think I'm getting Bato? that name right. Yes. And so, no, not Bato. Sorry. The puppet master. Oh, oh. right, 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 right. In which, so it's these two white actors and they're looking at each other. They're realizing their inner, quote unquote, Japanese identities. And then one of them says, like, Motoko? And the other one looks at the other and says, Hideo? I just laughed out loud. Yeah. Who, it's utterly who ridiculous. This? It was actually laughable in how right. horrible it was. Totally tone deaf. Yeah. And so different from the animation and what was hinted at in the manga, which was the puppet master. I mean, the puppet master was not a person. The whole point was the puppet master was an artificial intelligence who was sort of born of a critical mass of information and and sort of access, you know, access. And that was the whole point of that character and the, the sort of the the fragility of what we think of as a human identity was all lost. It became motoko. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I think that these kind of reactions of disappointment that we had were were echoed pretty well by fans and audiences. You know, the film, it made 19 million at the box office, the live action film, but it had 110 million budget and it had been originally projected to make about 30 million. So that includes our tickets and we weren't excited to go. We were going for research purposes. It was a necessity, <laughs> unfortunately. Well, and what was it? It lost out on the opening day to Boss Baby? Oh, that's <laughs> right. It did. I mean, Alec Baldwin. We can't. <laughs> yeah, which is telling, I think. And has gotten pretty abysmal ratings overall. I mean, not even just fans of the original source material have not liked it, but also just critics who are coming at it from, I think, maybe a perspective that is not, they're not even necessarily familiar with the source material. Also, it's just getting bad reviews. So, Yeah, and it seems like, again and again, we keep coming back to that it looked really beautiful, but that it just lost substance of the the from the classic material that it was drawing from that's over and over again we see is one of the the primary complaints but another huge complaint which kind of haunted the film really its release um, from the moment that it was announced was that the role of major right Motoko Kusanagi was given to Scarlett Johansson and some of you listeners might be wondering why that is so frustrating, why whitewashing is so frustrating. And it has a lot to do with Hollywood's history and its problems with race. Yeah, so Hollywood has a pretty bleak history, not only with portrayals of people of color, but also with white actors playing people of color, often in deeply offensive ways. Of course, we always think of blackface or yellowface, but also just in giving roles that should go to people of color to white actors. And there was the Oscar So White hashtag at the Oscar now two years ago that was trending. And these issues keep coming up year after year, but I don't think that there's been a lot of change. And we saw even in responses by Scarlett Johansson to these critiques um, and accusations of whitewashing were really disappointing. Yeah, before the film came out, she gave this interview talking about the controversy and this is a quote here. She says that major quote was or had a quote human brain in an entirely machine body. She is essentially identityless. And Scarlett Johansson said that she would quote never attempt to play a person of a different race. And 
of course, that is definitely not true. And it was even leaked that Paramount Studios had contacted a CGI company to try to make Scarlett Johansson look, quote, more Asian. And so, I mean, it was going to essentially be digital yellow face. And I think that this might be a good time to bring up Matt Thorne's take on the notion that manga characters are not drawn to be white, because that, I think, is often given as a justification, right? That manga characters look, quote unquote, white, therefore it must be okay to cast white actors in those roles. I don't know. Noriko, can you expand on that? Uh, Sure. So Matt Thorne is a longstanding figure in both the analysis and translation of manga. So she's a very major figure. She has published and spoken a number of times about this problem of assuming that manga characters are drawn to be white. And her point is that in many ways, manga characters are drawn, sort of central characters, are drawn in a way that's unmarked. So she draws a bit from Jakobsen's marked and unmarked Uh, sort of distinction in linguistics. And so the unmarked characters are ones in which one can imagine anything, in a sense. So they're they're drawn in a way that a Caucasian could see a Caucasian face in that. A Japanese person could see a Japanese face in that. It's sort of the uh, a form of the universal. And her point in terms of Japanese manga specifically is that Japanese society is one in which the norm is Japanese. So it only makes sense that an unmarked character represents Japanese character to to a Japanese reader. These manga are not drawn for international audiences in the first place. They're first published and circulated in the sort of massive industry within, within Japan. So they're they're not drawn for Caucasians. And you can, and she elaborates. She actually teaches at uh, an arts university in Japan, and so you know she talks very concretely about sort of uh, graphic strategies, and she points out that there are many marked characters in any of these manga, and you you know you know actually when you're looking at someone who's supposed to be Caucasian, they're drawn differently from the unmarked characters, just as you know when someone's supposed to be drawn in a specifically Asian manner. So that there there are there's a system. And within that system, the logical unmarked position is Japanese. So, that, you know, I think that uh, she makes a very good case. It's also true with Western imperialism, even though Japan was never uh, colonized, there's no question that Western hegemony deeply informed Western, I mean, Japanese modernization and, you know, sort of notions of, a, a, you know, ideal as being a Western body certainly were only reinforced under American occupation in post-war Japan. So so it's, it's not an either-or, I think, situation. And yet, I think it's really important to keep in mind Matt's key point, that it's Westerners looking at manga who insist that the unmarked position is Caucasian because they're used to the unmarked position within their own cultures as being Caucasian. That's not necessarily inherent to the Japanese manga as drawn and distributed to a Japanese audience. And, you know, (laughs) if you don't mind, about the way in which Motoko Kusanagi is, is drawn in the manga and in the anime is there's a huge gender dimension to all of this. 
which I'm not entirely sure I can sort of, you know, spin out into a full-blown theory yet, but particularly looking at the manga again. So the, the, the men's faces are distinctive and characteristic. The women, including the major, pretty much all have the same face and the same body. And in the manga, I had forgotten this, that they're drawn often in very, you know, like maybe the top half will be some kind of military uniform, but then they're just wearing underwear. So they're, you know, they're, yeah. they're not really real people in some ways, uh, in the way that, you know, even though Major is a sort of central character, particularly in the first manga, she's also drawn in a way that is more fantasy than any of the male characters, right? And that creates, I think, an interesting sort of opening for any reader, I think, male or female, right? No matter how they identify, to, I don't know, be both sort of subject and object at the same time as they may or may not inhabit the Motoko, Motoko character. In the anime, anime version, there's a little bit less fan service, I think, in how the major is drawn, but there is still a fair amount. So the opening credits, you know, you have sort of her naked figure very prominently displayed in suspension, and, you know, you see her from all the ankles and all that. But it's not cute in the way that it often is in the manga, the, the, the sort of woman's body. So there's, there's something has changed. And it's a little, the Motoko's body is a little bit more in the same sphere or space I think as the men's bodies right it's a little bit more individual in some senses but you know but she's also the only one who goes around naked <laughs> at the time so that you know right. it's, it, it remains a problem and then when you get to the live action you know Scarlett Johansson's body is either fully clothed and she looks kind of tough or she's naked but in a very asexual way I think. And so, you know, something else again has happened and I, and I, I can't quite articulate what has happened yet. Yeah, I mean the way that gender is played with in and sex as well actually in in the manga in particular kind of drops off the map yes. um in the anime and then also in the live action film. I think you know, especially with Matt Thorne's argument about the way that anime characters are drawn or manga characters are drawn, it's it's very compelling. And I think in this case, especially given the name of the character, you know, you've kind of illuminated a little bit, Noriko, about the, the style of the drawing and everything. It's not only, I think, a pretty fair argument by fans that this is a Japanese character, but also would be a really great moment for Hollywood to elevate, right, an Asian or Asian American actress. As, you know, we were talking about that interview with with Japanese and Japanese American actresses. Um, you know, one of them said, you know, this is a star, this is a star making film. This could have happened. And I think that there's, you know, a politics to it that is really present and important too. Right. And clearly the filmmakers were aware of some of the pitfalls, but again, their attempt to make up for the problems almost made it worse in that, you know, so after they announced Scarlett Johansson, they announced 
the name of a couple of Japanese actresses, I think, and they're invisible in the film. In totally. fact, the Japanese uh, actresses. One was the model for the geisha masks, and then I don't even remember where the other one was. Yeah, the geisha masks uh, was the only. It might, might have perhaps been was right. the mother. I think there, oh, there was right. one other. Um, but but you know they 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 were so absent that again you know you can't help thinking well you made a big announcement surely you could have given them a major role well and I think too another one of the defenses that has been used for her casting was that Ghost in the Shell portrays a sort of post racial techno future but. We should, I think what we want to say is that not only does Ghost in the Shell take place in the 21st century or in 21st century Japan, um, although maybe also we could say set in a sort of more complicated Asian landscape in the at least the anime. Right. But that Japan has a very special history with technology that is worth considering. And that was one of the major things that was one of the issues that really drove the Ghost in the Shell series. So maybe, Noriko, you could tell us a little bit about the historical and pop culture context in which Ghost in the Shell was created. It could be as simple or complex as you need to be. <laughs> I know it's a big ask. <laughs> right. Tell us everything. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, there's a lot of different angles that one could take. And I think the first thing that pops into my mind at the moment is Tetsuan Adam or Adam Boy as a key uh, pop cultural figure from the early post-war period. Um, and I don't know if you, have you ever seen uh, Adam Boy? Okay. I haven't. So no. The, no. the first episode is very much, um, there's a push and a pull in terms of a relationship to technology. So uh, the, the origin of Adam Boy is uh, he was the son of a scientist who was killed in an accident in a driverless car basically. So it was, you know, right away, you're set up with, you know, so being overly trusting in technology can be fatal. This is so terrifying. Yeah. I'm just thinking about I Uber, know. but go on. I'm sorry. No, <laughs> we're now basically in the age of driverless cars. So I was like, didn't you see the first episode? Of <laughs> Don't you know? <laughs> <laughs> we're in trouble. <laughs> and so the, the the father is overcome with grief and decides to recreate his son. And and then there's this this sort of. Um, wild, mad scientist scene where, you know, again, he's, he's sort of misabusing government sources probably to, you know, engage in this pet project of sort of a, a robot cyborg version of of his son. And, and that becomes Adam Boy. And he, and he tries to train his boy as uh, the, the, the robot as if he were a live boy. So there's a lot of confusion about the identity of Tetsuan Atom. And so, you know, so that's an early moment where I think you see um, both a deep attraction to the solutions that technology can provide as envisioned in early post-war Japan, but also a really deep consciousness of potential problems. When did that come out? I think it's the 1950s. Okay. I would I would want to look that up. Early post-war, right, though. Right, yeah, right. okay. It's a, a work by uh, Osama Tezuka, who's like one of the gods of, of manga. <laughs> Anyways, you know, uh, and stepping back one more step, 
of course, he's atom boy, he's Tetsuan Adam. He's, he's powered by atomic energy. He's got a mini nuclear reaction uh, going on inside of his body. So that, of course, evokes Hiroshima and Nagasaki, right? So again, you know, sort of overwhelming technology, overwhelming devastation, um, the end of the war, which is a good thing, but ongoing poisoning of the, the public body. So... I think that sets up for us sort of this the ambiguity in the relationship between technology and the future, you know, how problems can be addressed. Um, and we see that throughout post-war Japan. And I was looking over some of my old lecture notes for on cyborgs from the pop culture class. And I was focusing there on a series of anime from the late 80s and 90s where you have uh, a series of attempts to imagine a sort of fusion between the organic and inorganic. And in each case, the fusion cost, right? It was never a simple. There was a, there's a great deal of sacrifice and pain involved, usually. So there, there's the Giver Evangelion, Evangelion. I don't know if you've seen uh, that series, but it's another moment where there's these massive robot shells that are powered by people, but it had to be a person who had an organic relationship to, there's a sort of ghost in that shell as well. So, you know, you had to form the psychic bond, basically, to, to move the thing. And, and it becomes this torturous family, dysfunctional family history kind of thing. So it's, it's a very, very complicated story. But, you know, in each case, I think what I would want to stress is that, you know, it's, it's never an easy relationship. And I think in Ghost in the Shell, that's, it's part of that tradition of technology is the future. There's no getting away from it. But there are so many unresolved questions that have to be explored, and, and that it's, it's a, never an easy union. One of the huge disjunctures between the anime and the live action versions of Ghost in the Shell is precisely this sort of what it what is almost literally a marriage in the anime version between the puppet master and Motoko. It's it's about this more complete merge, merging of the inorganic and the organic as both valid sort of life forms, but different in their fun, you know, fundamentally different in their modes of reproduction. And therefore the two had to be merged to create something entirely new. And so there's this sort of opening up of horizons. Whereas in the live action, it just becomes this discovery that there is this sort of biological core to the major and to the puppet master. And that's kind of the end of the story. Then you kill the evil corporate head and and we're done. The the technology drops. It becomes anti-technology in some ways, where the previous incarnations are not against technology, even though there's an uneasy relationship. There's, a, you know, there's an exploration of a lot of questions. So maybe we should talk about the importance of the legacy of Ghost in the Shell in discussing those issues, at least from our perspective, being much more familiar with American pop culture. You can really see the influence of Ghost in the Shell and it's grappling with all of these issues in movies like Blade Runner and The Matrix. You can see it also in Black Mirror. And so I don't know if you can talk about its influence in Japanese pop culture. I think I would say rather than use the word legacy, I would say it was an important 
element in a bigger complex of getting back to that uh, history of thinking about technology and, and envisioning it through anime and manga in Japan. That Ghost in the Shell, in some ways, stands out more in the international landscape than it does in the Japanese landscape. So it's it's certainly it's it's a big phenomenon, but it was not solitary in that sense. That you know there there are other like I said, Evangelion and even this is a bit of a jump. But I was thinking about again a sort of different American translations of Japanese imaginations of technology and humanity. So um, one of the previews for the movie Ghost in the Shell that we saw was for Transformers. And in that Transformers preview, we never actually see the robots transform. They're just, they are. They have this sort of coherent, unified identity. And probably in the movie, they, they transform at some point. But I was thinking how the whole pleasure in sort of the original um, genre, so it's the, what became the Transformers in the U.S. was not a unique phenomenon in the Japanese landscape. You had lots of different mach- you know, machines and teams coming together to form something, a larger uh, unit. And the pleasure was those things coming together as a larger unit. And there was always drama in terms of the human, the team leader and the different people who have to learn to play their roles and how everyone has to coordinate and sometimes someone leaves the team either through death or betrayal or you know I mean it's, it's the whole soap opera side of things right but it's it's a very intense set of relationships that you know that's that's worked through in this idea of a transformer and that's just clearly not interesting to Michael Bay or you know whoever directed it <laughs> <laughs> just explosions right. really that's big what's robots right. lots of explosions and to get back to the legacy of Ghost in the Shell in Japan. Again, it, w- it wasn't unique, but it's part of a whole field of engagements with thinking about an intersection or interface between human and t- humans and technology. The movie is more directly philosophical than many of the other sort of incarnations, but not alone in that either. So I, I wouldn't venture to say that, you know, we, we have a, a direct legacy for Ghost in the Shell in Japan, but rather, you know, it's it's part of a field, an ongoing field. Well, and I think, too, that we can also situate Ghost in the Shell, or I should say it is situating itself in a conversation about the post-human and humanity and technology and really exploring those issues in a very quirky way, especially in the manga, that is really interesting. You know, the differences and boundaries between humans and robots, especially the Fujikoma little robot tanks um, that are kind of portrayed as these pet-like creatures that are demanding robot rights or demanding natural oil instead of synthetic oil and throwing fits and that sort of thing. So it really plays with these boundaries of human and animal and human and robot and cyborgs and the natural. Yeah. And it's not a binary either or. There's a lot of different incarnations of the possibilities. And that reminds me that, again, another one of those changes, to me significant changes between the anime and the live action in Ghost in the Shell is that there's an emphasis in the live action on being the first, you know, so that Montoko is important because she's the first successful sort of merging. And then you have all those failed experiments before. But in both the manga and the anime, the major is not unique. 
this is this is now how things are in in that space. Everyone is kind of a blend. There's a very few who are, are sort of pure human in some sense. It's been normalized, right? It doesn't mean all the questions are answered, but whether it's the Fuchikoma or whatever, there, there's, there's a very populated landscape of hybrids, whereas the whole drama in the live action is can this be done? And uh, she's special. And, you know, and of course, if she's special, that, that breaks the whole sort of uh, suspension. Of it because why would you send your first successful robot into all these situations where she's probably going to be blown up? <laughs> you wouldn't do that, right? You only can do that if there's more. And in the other, you know, incarnations of the, the other versions of this, there, there are more. Motoko is not alone. And I think that this too, at least from an American perspective, calls to mind issues with technology that we are now thinking about, like the rise of wearables, the sort of specter of implanted technology. I mean, and we already have that actually, I should say specter. I mean, like recreationally implanted technology. We already have implanted technology, plenty of it. And I think that from the American perspective that in Japan, that is where cutting edge technology is that is where there's humanoid robots being created and i know that noriko you are giving us some really excellent historical context for why there is a lot of research being done on humanoid robots and service robots right so robotics is well known to be one of the the key fields for technology technological development in japan and from the 70s automated car production factories and all that that there was a a whole discourse about how humans were being replaced in what were from an american point of view a very significant symbolic space you know in factories people were being replaced by robots right so this was this was a um, harbinger of a dystopian future but in terms of Japanese engagement with robotics, the expansion of the idea of the usefulness of robots has gone far beyond simply producing things with mechanical arms and the like, but rather um, how to supplement human society, particularly in terms of um, service, as you said, Melissa, and in terms of healthcare and care of the elderly. So robots, the sort of leading edge in robotics, as I understand it, is developing, in a sense, friendly, comfortable robots, robots that can pick up the elderly and move them to their bed if they've fallen down. Or, you know, and that means that's a that's an that's an incredible level of sophistication, right? I mean, these these robots have to be so much more responsive and able to read the environment. So it's, you know, it's a it's an amazing field. We were mentioning Big Hero Six, right? I was just it's thinking somebody, about yeah, that. Exactly. The big soft which squishy in, robot. Yes. <laughs> you know, which has a you know, that movie has a very different relationship to Japanese popular culture in that it's much more of uh, an homage. And rather than reworking the storyline, thinking through some of these problems and picking up on the fact that, that the sort of tension in Big Hero Six is how to negotiate between sort of the battle robot and the healthcare robot, or the comfortable robot. And in the end, it's the most important dimension of that robot is the the social side, the human side, or, you know, human is probably not the right word, but the, the human engagement, not the battle form. And so, you know, in and, and that's reflective of the state of the field uh, in Japanese technological development. The other thing that I, I think mentioned earlier was that uh, in terms of funding, 
uh, scientific research, um, the Japanese field, the Japanese sphere is seen as uh, distinctive because there's not so much funding for pure research in the universities, but a lot of the money comes from corporations and is directed more toward application. And you can see it, and especially toward consumer products. And I think that links into, again, why robots are so important in sort of the history of Japanese technology and the direction that they're taking now, which is toward human engagement, filling in for the huge um, sort of the the problem of the aging society in Japan and how there's a common lament that there aren't enough young people to support the elderly, both in terms of taxation and the like, but in terms of basic services and even companionship. Yeah, it's so interesting, this kind of thread of how Americans imagine technology in Japan and from Japan and how pervasive that is. But yeah, there there is this kind of cutting edge, I think. I can remember even when I lived in Japan as an undergraduate and I discovered Sekigai-sen. This, I don't even know what kind of technology, is it Bluetooth? I don't know. It's whatever it is, <laughs> you can trans like transmit your information, like a little digital name card to phones by holding them together. And, you know, this is, you know, back in 2008 or something. And I just thought it was magical. And it was just such a, it really reminds me of this conversation of this kind of marker of just this really cutting edge Japanese relationship and creation of technology that is such a part of the imaginary with like Big Hero 6, which is American, American produced and made film. But the protagonists are portrayed as Japanese. And there's obviously, you know, the brilliant kid scientist who makes this amazing robot. So yeah, it looms large in American imaginaries of technology. I think Japan does. So I think that we cannot end this conversation without talking about our own UCSC professor, Donna Haraway, and her work, and the way that it has been referenced in Ghost in the Shell. And that is actually another one of the ways in which the movie has been changed to, again, take out content. Because in the in Ghost in the Shell 2, Innocence, the anime, there's a character in that called Haraway. And she is the one who, in the scene where we see this sort of autopsy, yeah, like a robot. The, exactly, yeah. of the <laughs> robot. And she she smokes and she has these cy- cyborg eyes that sort of pop out. In the original, her, her name was Haraway. And she was a, a direct reference to Donna Haraway and her work on sort of cyborg, cyborg manifesto, cyborg, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And of course, that's taken out and her name is changed and she's no longer any reference to Donna Haraway in the live action movie. But, but I was wondering, when you teach about Ghost in the Shell or about any of these things, do you bring up Donna Haraway's work? Do you teach that with it? Absolutely. Yeah. And she has such a a wonderful way of articulating the whole problem of boundaries and and intersections. And so one of the quotes that I would use on my slides, as I can pull it up, is, uh, is from Primate Visions. And I'll start the quote, like any important technology, a cyborg is simultaneously a myth and a tool a representation, and an instrument. A cyborg exists when two kinds of boundaries are simultaneously problematic. One, that between animals or other organisms and humans. And two, that between self-controlled, self-governing machines, automatons, and organisms, especially humans, models of autonomy. The cyborg is the figure born of the interface of automation and autonomy. And I think that's a beautiful 
articulation of the tension within the animated version of Ghost in the Shell, where we haven't touched on the fact that the puppet master emerges as a villain in part by wiping people's memories and installing new memories that are and new identities that reveal how, again, fragile uh, humanity is and the importance of we think of our memories as forming our identity. And so then what happens when someone else's memories are implanted? Are we no longer ourselves? I mean, that's a, you know, it's a, it's a sort of tragic moment in the anime that's hinted at a little bit in Ghost in the Shell, but it because there hasn't been a buildup and there's not, it's not a sustained problem, it just kind of comes out of nowhere and drops out of sight when, um, what was it, the, the garbage truck driver is sort of encased and you can see that he's, he's now lost faith in his identity um, and has to live that way. But it's, it's a very pale and almost nonsensical echo of a, a sustained problem in the animated version. Yeah, and in the animated version, it's really played up uh, by Kusanagi, right? When she, when, when Motoko is um, kind of having these philosophical soliloquies about technology and the role of technology, she also really talks about, you know, what makes her unique and what makes her herself. And a lot of that is memory. And then to watch that kind of break down as we see that the fragility of those memories and of that identity throughout the animation is a really central it's just it's a tenant of that whole media franchise. And then, of course, at the end, in the first anime, she does merge with the quote unquote villain right. of that movie. And they become sort of a one new being, which is totally different. than She declines to do so yeah. in yeah. the live action. I know. And in the animated version, there's a whole body change as well, which um, she ends up in the body of a child, a female child, right? Which, I mean, that can, there's, there can be problems with that too, but it certainly points to sort of a, an open future and expansiveness that is the opposite of what we get in the real life. The live action Ghost in the Shell where it's, everything closes down in a sense to some kind of biological identity. I love the, yeah, the way they play with reproduction, right? right. They, they have, in their merging, sort of created a new being that is represented by having that being be a child well maybe we should end on that thank you so much uh yeah d final thoughts uh burning things that we did not yet cover <laughs> i know you had a lot of material i know there's so much but no this was really lovely and thank you for the opportunity to speak um with you have this conversation no thank you for for being here today with us we appreciate it so much in wrapping up we want to say a few words about our sponsors we're a new podcast funded generously by the American Councils for International Education Critical Language Scholarship Alumni Development Program and the Phillips Ambassadors Alumni Award at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. If you like our podcast, you could really help us out by telling others about the podcast and leaving a review on iTunes. You can follow us on Twitter at East Asia for All or visit our website, eastasiaforall.com, for show notes and more information about the podcast. We're lucky that we don't need funding or donations right now, but we could use your support in getting the word out. Thanks. Thanks.